Welcome to The Catch-Up, a podcast where we bridge psychology, linguistics, and mythology to provide communication tools that fit your mind. I'm Neil. And I'm Melissa. I'm a linguist and author with a concentration in discourse analysis. I also study and write about applied mythology and its effects on our ability to relate to ourselves and others. And I have 10 plus years of experience in the field of psychotherapy. I write about the myths we all have in our mind and their effects on our everyday behavior. This podcast brings together our respective fields so we can see what goes on in our minds, both socially and personally, so we can have the tools to communicate our way through any experience with understanding. Be sure to head over to patreon.com slash meal, M-E-I-L, or meal.podbean.com to check out our patron programs and view the patron tiers. For just $4 a month, you'll become a top-tier supporter and gain access to all of our current and future bonus episodes and content. Thank you so much for your support. Now let's catch up. Hey there, and welcome to The Catch-Up. Today's episode is all about uncomfortable conversations in the workplace. And we're super excited for today's episode because we have two really special guests, Pamela Coster and Mindy Hale from Falling Colors. Pamela has over 25 years of experience reviewing the effectiveness of various projects. At Falling Colors, she conceives of solutions that support best practices and quality outcomes while driving company direction. Mindy has spent 25 years in business operations and corporate financial management. She uses her creativity and collaboration with Pamela to focus on continuous business improvement and transformation. Welcome. Yes, welcome to the catch-up. We're really excited to have you two here, especially given what we know Falling Colors is all about and how much insight you have on this topic. So before we dive in, we'd love to hear more about your backgrounds and your work. Absolutely. This is Mindy, and I'm a fifth-generation New Mexican. I have family that came over to New Mexico, started out down in Carlsbad, landed in Chloride for a while, went up through Albuquerque, and even had some here in Santa Fe before we moved up here. Um, My background is actually in criminology and psychology, but I found when I was in graduate school for sociology that I had a proclivity for computers and ended up doing a stint at Intel where I changed my master's program, uh, went back and for computer resources and information management. And I started building databases at that point where I ended up starting to work with Pamela quite a bit, um, collaborating with her. And this is Pamela. Um, Let's see, I started out a long time ago at this point as a program evaluator. So what that is, is uh, research looking at efficacy of programs that are funded through public funds generally. My specialty was in behavioral health and educational programs that deal with some of the social problems that we have in this country and specifically in New Mexico. I started working as an independent contractor, oh, somewhere in the late 90s, and had my own consultancy business. And as my business grew, I realized that collecting the data that I had to collect was becoming really quite burdensome. 
I'm a statistician, so of course this was all being entered by hand into a program that was a lot like Excel, and then the computation within that program was a little bit challenging and so on. And Mindy said, you know, I can make your life a lot easier. I can build you a database that will handle all of this stuff. And that was pretty exciting. So we actually joined our companies together in 2014 or 15. We Neither one of us can remember. <laughs> and formed Falling Colors. So we have been officially partners in Falling Colors for a number of years now. Awesome. And so first off, we'd love to hear more about the conversational environment at the businesses you own. That was a very interesting question for me, mostly because I can answer it a thousand different ways depending on what sort of conversation that I'm thinking about. I would say in general, we are pretty straightforward in conversations. We're not afraid to attack certain issues. We're not afraid to talk about things. I think that's one of the hallmarks, actually, of Falling Colors, is that we talk a lot about a lot of hard things. Now, is that on purpose? Is that by design, or is that incidental based on the employees you've just happened to hire and the environment that's been cultivated as a result? I think it's intentional, probably. I mean, it's a, it's a confluence of all of those things, but it's definitely intentional. So Mindy said that her background was sociology. Well, so is mine. So if you think about the field of sociology, what we're really studying a great deal is the structures of society. And it's very hard to talk about the structures of society without talking about some of our more challenging social problems in the areas of racism, sexism, and so on. One of the things that I think it's really important to do is to talk about these things, is to say, did you know that different people make different amounts of money depending on how tall they are or whether they're male or female or white or not white? We talk about these things a lot because a lot of times when people first come into our environment, which is, as Mindy, can, Mindy, why don't you talk a minute about the tech world, what that's like? Sure. The tech world is, I think, probably relatively known to people um, just by watching the social network, right? You have, it, it's predominantly populated with white men. Um, young, old, it doesn't matter. As long as they're white men, they pretty much make up the tech world. Right. And so you think about the skill sets that we need for our company. That's where they live, by and large. So, of course, we ask, well, why is that? Why is it mostly white guys that have the skill sets that we need? And there's all kinds of reasons for that, right? The privilege reasons, just all the things that we talk about. So... A lot of times these guys come to our company. Now there is a self-screening process, right? We are really mission-driven. People don't join us if they're not mission-driven. So right there we have a selection bias toward people who are willing to engage with that part of themselves. So they come in and they're willing to engage with that part of themselves. They joined us because of our mission. And then we start talking about, well, what does it really mean to be doing the work that we do. The work that we do is processing a great deal of finances and data on behalf of public and private entities to actually make changes in the world around social problems. 
So that means that we are addressing problems like the foster care system, like people who are struggling with substance abuse. So when you're really looking at that stuff, you really want to understand what are some of the causal factors or certainly what are the correlated factors because we can do a better job the more we understand that. So we have these white guys coming in with their tech skills. They're coming into a mission because really they believe in it, but a lot of them don't really understand what are the processes in our culture that led us to this point in time. So we talk about it a lot. We talk about disparities in income. We talk about disparities in healthcare access. We talk about the data that we look at is the, mis the, the underrepresentation of white men in jails, for example, and the overrepresentation of Hispanic men. It's really interesting to have people start to think about these things and see the data and go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's, that's wild. One of my favorite things to do is to take income research and list it out in order of who makes the most money to who makes the least money. And Pew Research often does this, where they do race and sex in some sort of configuration. So almost always we have white males at the top, and then what falls below kind of changes every year. But in general, we end up with Hispanic women at the bottom. And there's this whole series of steps, and each step down makes a little less money. Native Americans are not even included in this. And if you look at their Native American income, it's, it's way below even what's talked about with the other groups. We talk about all of these things. Most of our people don't know that. They didn't know it. They're shocked by it. They're interested by it, and it helps them to start thinking about things differently. And we have an advantage as a company because we are all kind of data freaks. We love <laughs> looking at data, we're interested in data, and we're predominantly working in some area of social determinant of health. And so because of that, we have to talk about data just to understand the world we live in and the world we're working in, right? I should get, I guess I would correct that. We have to understand the world we're working in, which by default means we have to understand the world we're living in. And that has opened a lot of eyes with our staff members because they are thinking about things that they may not really have had to think about in their previous job. We've had people come to us from security-focused areas where they're working on data systems for banking transactions, for example. Um, we've had other people come to us from the labs or, or, or various financial places that are not really looking at what happens when someone gets let out of jail and they need, they need to have follow-up programs in some kind of substance abuse treatment facility. Um, and really looking at the individuals that are experiencing all of these major hardships. Yes, and you do agree with me there. We think that introspection and self-reflection aspect is key in this. And you know we appreciate how you're doing that because of how much ground we have to cover with this and how much catching up we have to do. And so that plays into the next question. How and when should employers allow uncomfortable conversations about categories of concern like race, sexuality, politics, etc. at work? It's, it's kind of interesting yeah. um, 
because of how we function and who we are, I, there, it's like you, you mentioned before we really started recording this podcast, Neil, is that there's, there's laws, right? That you, you have to walk inside various lines of, of what you can and cannot talk about. But inside of that, I think as leaders in our company, we need to set the example on what kind of environment we want to be in. And that's, Pamela and I were talking about this the, the last couple of weeks, it, it's creating an open environment, one that is kind, one is th that has empathy, um, and part of that empathy is understanding that everyone walks a different path. And I think it's easier to have what you would call difficult conversations by making them not difficult, right? And you do that just by having respect for everyone. Um, I, th I think one of the thing that it, things that's really important for us is to look at issues that are going on at a more systemic level rather than the individual level. As soon as you start diving into an individual's characteristics, especially in your workplace, you're setting yourself up to create some dynamics in the environment that are not good for your company or, or the, the members on your teams. Um, you can just end up with a lot of hurt feelings. Well, and also there's already a ton of trauma. So we all have trauma around these issues and some of us have a great deal of trauma around these issues. And so when we dive into these things, we're gonna hit up against trauma. So how do you do that in a workplace? Well, what you do, you go back to what I was saying before, you look at the structural issues. Like Mindy said, you look at the systemic stuff, the systemic sexism and racism, and how does that play out? And one of the things you can do, one of the things that we recommend companies do is really clearly define their values, their core values, and hold to those up against, put those core values up against structural sexism and racism and say, okay, here's our values, Here's what's going on in the world. What processes have we inadvertently, unconsciously, whatever words you might use there, codified into our own corporation and let's deconstruct those. And you focus on the processes and standards that need to be adjusted rather than the people because it's so easy to re-traumatize people who have already been traumatized significantly. We have some people on our staff who aren't white male Mindy and I are queer. We, we take that right that bull right by the horns and put it out there for everybody. I think a very interesting and valuable viewpoint is the social intersection. So you look at where do you fit on the intersection of race, sex, income, and other SES measures. You can do it that way too. And you really talk about what is your own position and you start to understand that. We do that by role modeling. We talk about who we are and what we are and what some of those experiences have been. But we don't expect that level of disclosure from our staff because people have a ton of trauma. What we expect is what Mindy was saying, the kindness, the empathy, the respect, and to be willing to grapple with the processes that we may have codified in our own company that need to change. Right. I think. Um when, when, when Pamela's talking about disclosing information or sharing stories, 
it's, it's along the lines of giving an understanding to other people. For example, um, one of the challenges that comes about with race can also be experienced in the queer community where you are not able to hide essentially who you are to get through any particular situation. And there was a road trip that we went on where we had to really be somewhat secretive when we were checking into a hotel so that we did not experience really, really bad things. Um, so it, it's kind of that situation where some people have never had to think twice about going into a store or walking out in the street or checking into a hotel where others have to plan these things out. Is this a safe place to go? Can we actually stay in this town? How can we get from Santa Fe up to Vancouver and not put ourselves in danger? And there's some people that it has never occurred to them that they would even have to contemplate something like that. So it's bringing stuff like that to people's awareness is it's profound in many ways because they listen and we have a relationship with them. We respect them, they respect us, and it allows them to start really developing that empathy for a different way of walking through the world. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. So, you know, one of the things that's recommended in the literature and case studies and so on is to develop some sort of inclusivity or social justice council group within your company. So we actually tried that. And after a few weeks, we abandoned it. And we abandoned it just because of that issue as people were feeling too vulnerable. They were feeling that their traumas were too close to the surface. And so walking into a, a group, this was, this was well, walking into a Zoom group, you know, because it's a pandemic. And suddenly going from just taking care of financials a minute ago to grappling with these things and then going back to financials was just not working. There was a cognitive dissonance for some folks. There were other people who were just not sure that this was the safest way to do things. It became very clear to us relatively quickly that this isn't really where we wanted to go, that this was not really what is going to advance our company. It really goes back to, probably this is gonna sound pretty repetitious, but it's so true is un walking in each other's shoes the best that we can from a place of respect and empathy. So what I've decided to do that we haven't done yet, but we are starting it, is to use performance arts as a way to start to communicate other people's experience. So you could probably think of some movies that really moved you, that brought a viewpoint to yourself that you never had before. So there's a few things that we have lined up, then we'll let you know how it goes. I think it will go well, where it will expose people to people's experiences that are radically different than them in some kind of social intersection. Just maybe they are, oh, for example, there's this show called We Are Here, and it's black drag queens going on the road to rural white towns. It's a, it's a really profound thing to watch. One of the towns is Farmington, by the way. 
So it, it and lays one of the that drag out. Queens is white. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it lays out this whole thing for you to watch in a very, very good way. They did an excellent job. And they did it with kindness. They did, and with respect on, on everybody's side. So that's the first thing we're going to start with. And I have a few other things lined up to follow that, looking at different slices of our culture where people do have to struggle with the kind of things that Mindy's talking about. And then we talk about this, again, always bringing it back to the systemic issues that we have in our, in our country, in our world, in our cities, in our workplaces, and in our home. And how does that play out? And looking at, so how do we develop a company? How do we do the processes that allows for everybody to receive that respect and empathy? And what's really important, I think, to take from what Pamela just said is having that, you have to have that intention, you have to have that purpose. I think just doing an inclusivity council, for example, or doing implementing some other kind of program to try and get people to check off a box, shall we say, it's, you're not going to be successful, I don't think. I think you really have to have an intention, a purpose. Why are you doing this? And having leadership involved in a way that demonstrates its value. And you make it clear with your staff that, hey, we're doing this for this development of empathy. We At the end of this, we want you to have an understanding of what... X, Y, and Z is about. Um, and I think that really needs to be clearly spelled out so that expectations are, are front and center. But also to get back to your question about employers specifically, I think, I think the people who are in charge, as it were, however that's defined in your company, need to do the work. They need to do the education. They themselves need to understand those issues that we're talking about. And you need to role model. As that leader, you need to role model how it is that you want everyone else in your company to behave. Mm -hmm. Yes, and what you, what you expect for them and from them. I think one of the... It's hard to implement, right? So we had a contractor we were working with. And he came in and he started making comments that were quite derogatory. They were um, negative towards Native American. They were negative towards um, people from Mexico. And they were negative. They, it, there was a lot of fat shaming. And I couldn't believe that he is saying all this in a professional meeting. And I had to tell him to stop, that that is not how we act as a company, that is not the values we want brought in to our company, and if he wanted to work with us, he was not going to be able to bring that attitude into this environment. What astounded me in that moment is he was completely unaware he was doing anything inappropriate. Right. And he backtracked, and he was like, oh, Oh, oh! You're absolutely right. That's I don't I don't. He was like catching himself that he didn't really think that way, 
and he wasn't sure why he said all that. It, it, I was floored. I was just floored. Yeah, I agree with you. A lot of these standards and ideals and expectations and stereotypes about groups of people are internalized, and many of us don't even recognize it. When I first got into the workforce, for example, one of my first jobs was a temp job. And, you know, we were told that we weren't allowed to talk about wages and salaries and things. And on accident, again, because we weren't allowed to talk about it, I found out that a male counterpart of mine who had less experience than me was making a dollar something more an hour. And I just thought, oh, well, shame on me for having the conversation. And that's just the way women are paid. That's just the way these types of things work. I have since grown out of that thought process and recognized that things do need to change structurally for a lot of different groups of people for many different reasons. But I love what you're saying about recognizing people's traumas and their backgrounds and experiences and their lived experiences as to how they got where they are. But when you're having these conversations with your employees in the workplace, do you have any boundaries that you keep in mind when the conversations are happening? Do you have any that you enforce or any that you have in hand in case things get too intense or too emotional or too personal or anything like that? You know, we really don't have that problem. And it's probably because we're always doing the bringing it back to the structural stuff, always doing the education. One of the things that was the most interesting to me is that we had a developer who worked for us for a while. Um, he came in and he was, he was a really good developer, but he didn't really have the same value system as the rest of us. It was very interesting. He left and he went on to another job and at his exit interview, I think he worked with us for two years before he left, he said that he wanted to talk to us about what we had done for him. When he came in, he thought that people who were addicts of various substances were just dirtbags, basically. Um, they didn't care about anything. They weren't worth anything. They shouldn't be saved. He didn't really see them as human. No, he did not. And after working with us for two years, it completely turned him around. He started to understand that they were people. He started to understand the reasons that these things happened to them, why their lives were the way that they were. And believe it or not, he left us to go work for immigration law, which of course is the hotbed of radical politics. So I thought I was pretty stoked about that. It was probably one of the best compliments that we ever could have gotten. So again, just bringing it back to that educational component, really understanding what's happening in the world from a data perspective and then also from an empathy perspective changes how people are in the world. We have seen it over and over again, which means that the kinds of conversations we have are not spectacularly intense. They are not about burying your emotional souls to each other. Sometimes that happens a little bit, but mostly it is all from that understanding of how the society at large works. It's easier for people because you're not shaming anybody by saying that. You're saying, okay, this is what we grow up in. This is what we are breathing and eating every day. How do we live here? How do we make a difference here? So it removes the shame, which I think is a huge part of these conversations where it goes wrong. 
and we just bring it back to solving the problem, solving the problem. It's not their fault that we are here. It's not my fault we are here. But it's our job to figure out how to leave this space and make it better. But it's really interesting with what you're saying, Melissa, about the making a dollar less, right? As women, it's, it's phenomenal how much we are really expected to just accept the way things are. Right. And I think what it's it's interesting to to consider these questions because we don't really approach things in our world as we have a problem that we need to address and fix. It's more again going back to the systemic issue, which is what you highlighted about about getting a dollar less for the same job. And in focusing on it being a systemic issue, we can then work more on just empowering the women who are in our world, who are in our sphere of influence. How can we let them know they're valued? How can we let them know the work they're doing is valued? Um, Certainly, we start by pay equity, yeah. right? That's just a part of our company culture. Um, but even further than that is really working on the empowerment aspect because all women need to understand and know that their place in this world is, is front and center and they have every right to be there. Yeah, and not just women. We have... Uh we, we do talk about this stuff a lot at work, and everyone who is a member of a minority or identifies as a minority in some way or another has expressed that they struggle with that as well. Right, and this isn't to discount white men, right? We have a lot of incredible white males on, in our company. They are just incredible. What we're talking about here, though, is what is happening with those individuals who who have experiences that are just obstacles that just constantly have to be overcome and barriers that constantly have to be overcome just in your basic day-to-day -day functioning that most times white males don't experience. Yes, and you're covering a lot of ground there. You're capturing and kind of defining personal and collective transcendence, which is just incredible for any group. And you can hear the results showing up and what you're saying there. So can professionalism be maintained as a business, as an owner or CEO between employees when there are discussions of potentially sensitive topics, having those conversations, those discussions, that doesn't have to shatter workplace professionalism standards, correct? I think that's absolutely true. And I also don't think it's a problem to have emotion, right? Um, I think, uh, so when all the protests were going on with the murder of George Floyd, we, we had to talk about it as a company in one of our, our team-wide meetings because it it was impacting so many people. It was, it was really, really hard. Um, and in talking about it, I, I broke down. I 
I didn't intend to break down. I, I, it just happened. It's, it's very, very emotional. And it's, I think it's okay to have that. I think it's okay to be that. Um, and I think there needs to be a space and place where that is okay. And again, um, we create that kind of environment in which to work, it's, it, people know that it's safe, whatever, whatever they're dealing with, whatever they need to express, it's safe, it's okay. Yeah, we work pretty hard at establishing that environment, and we do have a goofy thing about professionals, I mean, when I say we, I don't mean our company, I mean this culture at large has a goofy thing about what it means to be professional. So really, that's what I like to deconstruct, is what does it mean to be professional? Absolutely, that's a joke. And what does it mean to lead, and what does it mean to be a good worker? I think these are things that we really have to ask and we have to challenge, because being professional in our old way of thinking is the opposite of what Mindy was just talking about. You don't show anything, you do a stiff upper lip, you just get right through it all, and I think that those of us who are in minorities learn that, that there are times and places when that is what you need to do. It's the safest. However, I think as leaders, if you demonstrate that range that includes, includes the true feelings that you have, the authenticness of yourself, and your response to unbearable situations, which is completely legitimate, completely human, and I think ultimately more resilient, then you can lead your company through those things. This has been a really tough time for everybody. And if we can bring that sense into our company of, yeah, this is really hard, this is really heartbreaking, we're somehow going to find our resilience and we're somehow going to support each other through that, I think you have the makings of the most amazing group of people that can really make changes. It could be a company, it could be a family, it could be a community. I think it's important regardless of what kind of group it is. Absolutely. And I, I love the whole approach of deconstructing what it means to be a professional. Because we have bumped up against some people who are considered professional who are just flat-out jerks. We walk away feeling incredibly bad. It's not who we want to interact with. We will never work with them again. And we, we find that, okay, that is not how we want to be. What we've learned is that is definitely not how we're going to be in this world. And so the, our idea of professional, again, like Tamala said, it's going to get a little redundant goes back to being being kind and, and having that empathy. Yeah, I really agree with you there. And I love what you're saying because, and I've seen this and kind of experienced it a little, so this may be a tad anecdotal, but a lot of times when I think to keep up the sense of professionalism, we're asked to keep a stiff upper lip. We have to disassociate a little from any emotionalism going on within or around us which creates a sense of indifference, which actually cultivates a complete lack of empathy. So what you're touching on is extremely important. And while we are talking about 
you know, the murder of George Floyd and all of these things that happened in 2020 seemingly all at once um, and were very confounded by the tumultuousness of everything that was going on in the year. Do you think 2020 and everything that went on created a demand for these types of conversations to be allowed in the workplace? Was that demand already there, do you think? What are your thoughts on whether it'll continue? What, tell us your thoughts there. I, well, we've always done it. Um, I, I don't know what other companies think. You know, I, I, think this is, I think that's a great question. And what I really hope is that we actually start making changes instead of just having discussions. I think we actually need to start behaving in a way that matches our words. <laughs> and it's, it's one thing, it's, I, I'm going to back up a little bit. We, in 2020, Falling Colors, we became a B-certified corporation. And part of that is having your business be a force for good. And what I really like about that is you're really forced to look at how you, how you set up your business, how you function, and if you're actually doing what you say you're going to do, right? You kind of get held to the fire if, you're, if your policies are only on paper and not implemented. And what I really hope with my whole being comes out of 2020 is that we we have enough companies come together and actually say we're not going to do business the way we have always done business we are going to be genuinely inclusive we are going to treat all people equal you, you do the job you get the pay it doesn't matter what you look like anything and that's, I, I really hope it moves past discussion. So it's really interesting to me in thinking about this is 2020, you know, before 2020, all the same things were still there. It's no different. It's just bubbling away under the surface. But somehow in 2020, we had this massive cultural consciousness shift where, oh, wait, we as a company need to address these things. Where before, that wasn't really... I don't know, it's just really fascinating to me. The talk has certainly changed. I also really hope that the action changes. But I also, I noticed though this in the fashion industry. So suddenly there's all these small sustainable clothing, slow sustainable clothing manufacturers springing up right and left in 2020 because that's now seeming to matter. Well, it mattered in 2019 too. So 2020, what happened where suddenly we're saying, oh, hey, not only does it matter to say it matters, but we need to do something about it. It's, it's just really, really interesting and cool. So as hard as 2020 has been, I do believe there has been a palpable shift. Yeah, I hope it's a catalyst for action. I really I, do. Well, I, th I do too. I think about back to the, the Rodney King um, yeah. beating in L.A., and... That resulted in protests, and people were charged, and then it, it ended, and then people went back to their lives, 
right? It's sometimes it is just easier to go back to your life. Mm -hmm. And I, I, the pandemic may actually be a bit of a, of a catalyst in this also, where it's impossible to go back to our lives right now. It's just impossible. So it, it may actually result in some more permanent changes. That'd be cool. But Melissa, did we answer your question? Oh, absolutely. I love everything you're saying and bringing awareness to, because I personally think, you know, we spend 40 hours a week at work, typically. And I think when something as big as 2020 is happening, when all these events are happening, and when these traumas are surfacing, we have to be able to talk about it in the place where we spend 40 hours of our week. So absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting. You you think about different categories of work, like my category of work. I've always been just immersed in this, but watching people kind of segue into a greater collective consciousness and evolving this on a day-to-day basis at work and outside of work, that has been huge, and that's going to have long-lasting effects. Oh, yeah. You, you can't ignore it. Right, definitely, and agree with that. As we know now, a lot of people are becoming more aware of collective consciousness. And so one of the equations we like to use is collective subconsciousness and unconsciousness to evolve the entire collective consciousness. And so with that equation in mind, um, one cheesy little technique I've used in the past with clients, and it seems to work very well in that you can kind of change the way you conceptualize these things, is think about how you spell role model. If you just change that E to an L, you see it more as a process, something that you're evolving forward. And then by using that, you can realize you're using the unconsciousness and the subconsciousness to create more consciousness. So with that in mind, being mindful of how immersive is too immersive, can we make sure things are still rolling forward without losing sight of when things are getting kinked up or too in-depth? Hmm. You know, I think our company is a little unusual in that our whole work revolves around disparities and inequities. And so we talk about it all day long, every day, about people, what, what's, what are the needs? How is the data showing things? What are the policy changes we need? That's just the ambience, the constant ambience of our work. So I'm not sure we are that representative. Yeah, I, that's a that's a tough one, Neil. Um, how immersive is too immersive? It's I I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think. Um, I think sometimes we can have discussions that kind of the that staff kind of squirrel on, right? We can get too far into the weeds as to become a little pedantic maybe, and we have to pull people back and out of it, but it's more because we've kind of lost focus than it's gotten inappropriate or uncomfortable. Right? It's just kind of trying to bring people back. 
Well, we're so solution-focused as a company that we don't really debate as much as we do say, huh, I think we better look at that. That's just not going that well. What can we do to change that? Yeah, and I think the other, the other thing that might help is we have open doors, and not just from a leadership perspective, but from an everyone perspective. So there is any number of people that if someone is having a hard time or a difficult time with any particular situation, that they're able to go talk to somebody else. Um, there's, even though we have HR, internal HR, we also have set up a process that if there's anything uncomfortable that anyone is experiencing, and they don't feel like they can talk to anyone in the organization, we also have an external HR representative that they can go and talk to confidentially. So we, it's, it's creating those avenues and mechanisms where people are able to find their comfort levels to avoid that kind of over-immersive possible approach. Yeah, I guess I don't really... What do you mean exactly by that, Neil? Yes. So by the word immersive or the question as a whole? The question as a whole. So when I hear that question, I think you're talking about conversations between two people or three people that can get quite emotional or heated. Is that what you mean? Yes. So I'm kind of coming at it from a little bit of a, I guess, psychotherapist point of view. And obviously, you're kind of in a public forum, so to speak. And so you've already touched on a lot of kind of the barriers and boundaries with this, where you kind of have your feelers out and you're kind of like, oh, that got a little too emotional or a little too um, heated. So I guess the real question is, where have you found your intuitions with that? Was it already there? Did you kind of find it over time and develop it in? Is that making more sense? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think that both, well, I, I'll speak for myself. And you, I, I think you're here also, but I'll speak for myself. Okay. Um, there is, I, I think I have a certain level of intuition, um, I guess is where I would go with it. So if it's almost as if I could feel a temperature in a room. You've heard that expression, I'm sure. Um, and if things are getting heated or if things are cooling off, which whichever analogy you want to take there, it, it's just being aware of those changes, those nuances. I think I am pretty good at I think Pamela is actually pretty exceptional at it. Um, and I, actually, I would say quite a few people on our team are, and I would posit it's more kind of related to introversion. <laughs> we have a high number of introverts on our team. That's part of some somewhat of the technology world. And when you're that introverted, you spend a lot of time thinking about things, uh, rethinking about things, and then rethinking about your rethinking. And it just... <laughs> It can go on and on, and it makes us, as a company, I think, way more aware of other people's feelings and emotions in any given situation. And, and the thing is, though, I think why I'm struggling with this question so much is we don't have those things happen. We don't have those kinds of conversations. 
And so why don't we have those kinds of conversations? Because we're talking about all this stuff all the time. And we're talking about our own viewpoints and our own positionality and how it relates to the culture at large. I think it's because we keep the shame out of the room. Um, and that's when people get... I think when it goes really bad is when you open the door to shame. And I know that you can open your, your own door to your own shame really quickly and really easily, but we just don't do that at our company. So I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to make it more concrete. How is it that we don't do it? What do we do instead? It's, it's a matter of acknowledging yeah. people when they talk, when they share yeah. something, when they say something as being their, their experience. What what has happened to them? How they felt about it? That all of that is real. Yeah, and I think we have this um, attitude that when someone is speaking about their own life experience, we are in learning mode, we are in student mode because they are the expert on their own lives. We are not, and I do think that that is that value is shared by everybody, and we execute that really well. Excellent. And so that covers a lot of ground. Um, let me just maybe reflect back what I'm hearing you say there. Basically, you're using like your introspection, your intuition, and your introvert powers to navigate these things more adaptively, which absolutely, I think that's brilliant. And I agree. And so maybe let me throw in a little side question. What would be your advice to extroverts who could maybe benefit from this? I would say the the biggest advice I have for extroverts, some are really good at this already and some are not, and that is to learn how to deep listen. Take the time, right? Take yep. the time to really listen. And at by, your deepest level. Yeah, and by deep listening, um, is, I'm sure that is not a freshly coined expression. Mm -mm. Um, by deep listening, what I, what I see with that is again going back to developing some capacity for empathy you need to be able to not only hear it but understand it and accept it as someone else's truth absolutely i think that's so important because i know myself i have absolutely experienced the people who have not acquired that deep listening skill and it does make it harder to have some of these conversations. And I do sort of have a, a follow-up question, and perhaps this maybe isn't even a concern of yours. Given the self-selective process you mentioned of curating your team, but when we just collectively are consistently being flooded with outside rhetoric or these outside you know, concerns and opinions... You know, which at a lot of times can seem to say the facts you see are not the facts you see, you know, and they can, you know, sometimes be really gaslighty or denial driven. How can you make sure that your employees are talking about these things, about the actual reality of things without becoming too, you know, invested or immersed or just, you know, plain angry about everything? <laughs> it's pretty hard not to be angry about stuff these days sometimes, isn't it? Um, I think it just goes back to, I mean, 
we just keep saying it, I think it goes back to really taking that place of empathy, kindness, and respect. So it means the willingness to step out of your position, your opinion of the moment, and just really be present with that other person, which I guess is a type of mindfulness. I mean, that's another way you can think of it, is learning mindfulness is learning to be present. And so being present with the other means you have to step out of that. And we work really hard at that, too. In fact, when we can reopen again, which I hope will be in the next six months or so, then we'll be teaching, having someone teach mindfulness classes at our building because I think it's so important when we can hang with the moment, when we can hang with the other in the moment, that stuff falls away and you just really sit there in kindness and respect for each other. You just have a different way of being. Right, and I, I, misinformation right now is, is super challenging and I think we have a responsibility as the leaders in our company to bring forward our company's position. Um, let's take COVID for an example. Uh, there's uh, a tremendous, there, there's less misinformation now, but there's still a ton out there that you have to wade through on what's real, what's not real, uh, what, what to do. As a company, um, during the last year of the Trump administration, we were really trying to figure out how are we supposed to go forward with this pandemic? What are, what are we supposed to implement? We have everyone fully remote. It, we feel it's our responsibility to keep people safe. So what we had to do, and Pamela mentioned this earlier, it's our, our responsibility to educate ourselves in so many things. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. It's, you can't be a leader and just kind of clawed through everything without educating yourself of, of what's going on. And you have to kind of wade through a lot of the misinformation and figure out the path you're going to take. With the pandemic, we really had to figure out how we were gonna go forward, what actions we were going to take. Um, we have implemented now that the vaccine is available uh, to everyone 16 and over we have implemented a mandatory vaccination policy for in-person work and we're not saying you have to agree with the vaccination uh, policy but we're saying if you need if you're going to work in person we have to protect all of our staff that are going to work in person which means you will have to be vaccinated and we will make accommodations for you if you choose not to go in that direction. Um, we'll make accommodations for you to work at home um, wherever possible. And so it's making those kind of decisions, but doing so in a respectful way. So we took several uh, team-wide meetings to educate people on the COVID vaccine, what the efficacy is, what's involved, what ingredients there are, how long it's been around, what does it really mean to have something rushed tr through trial, and is it really rushed, and what all, what all really is the story. And at a minimum, we're at least giving a platform for our staff to come to us with questions, 
concerns of knowing where we are and giving them some kind of solid ground. Beautiful. And so what we're hearing here is you've kind of mastered the meta communication. So let's build off that. How do you stay mindful of kind of like that meta level and then people's micro reality kind of so collective and personal could kind of be used interchangeably with those terms there. Could you comment on maybe like what those good stopping points are when you're kind of reading the room and noticing someone's getting uncomfortable or kind of feedback for companies that don't even want to go there because it can be so um, uncomfortable and boiling point like? Well, again, I think that if, if you set the stage as the leader with these are our database realities. And in our company, that's an incredibly effective strategy. Here's what the data says. Here's how we know that these disparities are real, which takes it out of my anecdote, my emotion. It puts it right into, well, and of course we have self-selection here because people work for us who take data as a real and true way to measure reality. So if you don't share that assumption, then this strategy isn't going to work. But if you do share that assumption, then this is an excellent strategy, is you set the stage with data, and you set it with what is it that you want to deal with. So let's say you want to deal with with racism, and you want to take an aspect of racism. So you could take housing laws, you could take redlining in some of the big cities, and do all the stats related to housing, redlining, uh, housing prices, all the things that we know that happen around these sorts of things. I lived in Chicago for a while, so of course that's where I go and think about because I experienced that. You start with that, and so in our group, that becomes an unarguable, we're, we're not going to argue that. that. That is what the data says, that's what the research says, so we are all going to accept that. So we have a common reality that we have decided that we're going to accept. So if you accept this reality of inequality, then what does that mean? And what does it mean? What's our responsibility to that inequality? What is our responsibility of ourselves as individuals and as our company? So when you start framing it that way, it really makes the conversations far easier than you think it might be. But again, you have to all agree that that data is a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't that key right now? (laughs) Yeah. And I do love what you're saying right there about that shared reality, because I think that touches on Neil's comment about collective consciousness. But if we are, you know, living in different realities, then we each have a different set of facts and, you know, different sets of ideas about how the world works. Um, And I think that's a really important component to all of this. And so what do you want other businesses or business owners to know and understand about workplace dynamics and uncomfortable conversations? What are some takeaways that you'd like to pass on to others so they can implement these types of things in their own workplaces? And take the bull by the horns. Just just talk about it, role model talking about it, role model talking about it in a respectful way role model talking about what your sphere of influence is and what the solutions are that you can come up with within your sphere of influence. Don't ignore it. Right. 
I, I think what I would add to that is you have to be, you, you yourself have to be comfortable talking about things. If you are uncomfortable, it will absolutely show and it will make everyone uncomfortable. So yeah, that's true. So I'm I'm not a I'm not a big fan of of role playing because I'm I'm not good at it. Um, quite honestly, some people really get into it. But what I can do is practice real world discussions. I can talk with people about things that I might be a little uncomfortable with about. Where And I'll do that with people that I'm very comfortable with, right? Until I can get to the point where, okay, this, this is something that, that I can talk about with anybody now. And, and at that point, I can take it to the entire team. Oh, that's so true. So this is really funny. One time, so one of the surveys that we have to to collect data on in our career was what they call the GIPRA, which is a particular set of questions that Congress wants to know the answer to of any funding they give for substance abuse. And for a while, under certain presidential administrations, there were these questions that were so intrusive about people's sexuality and their sex lives. And so we had to train people how to ask people who are coming to receive services, these incredibly intrusive questions. And we played a ton of games, a ton of, I mean, this, we did this all at a big training. It was really interesting. And we got really comfortable saying words that normally you don't say in conversation, particularly with people you don't know very well, and particularly when you're trying to get them to answer questions. But we practiced it over and over and over and over again until finally it became really comfortable and really easy to ask these questions. It was so interesting to me. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and, it's, and what was so funny about this particular situation is we had all these really inappropriate words written on different pieces <laughs> of paper, you know, that you kind of you, you pull from a hat. And then you have to use this word in a sentence or something. So we had been doing that and had gotten really comfortable with all these body part words. And we went and got in the elevator at this hotel, and I accidentally <laughs> dropped the little bag that was holding all these words. And the other guests in the elevator had not participated in the conference with us. They were... They were a little startled by some of the words they saw, but I was really comfortable. <laughs> but yeah, the point being is that, that really you can get comfortable with things that are just either personally uncomfortable or socially uncomfortable by practice. You really can. You get better and better and better at it. I love experimenting in that way. You just you try it one way and you say, ooh, that didn't go so good. I'm going to try it a little differently next time. And you make your adjustments and make your adjustments, and you'd be surprised at how fast you get comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And you, you may end up, I would say to other businesses, business leaders, you, you just really have to look at your own stuff. You, you do. have to understand where your weaknesses are, where your blind spots are, 
You may not even be aware of them. You may need help identifying them. You may need friends to say, to be honest with you and say, yeah, you kind of have an issue over here with, with women or with men or, or with this race or that race. And you really have got to, you've just got to own it. And, and basically, I would say get over it and get over it quickly so you can start being the leader that, that your company needs. Yeah, and I, I guess the other thing I would add is, like, it's okay if you have internalized some prejudices and some biases and some things you're not particularly pleased about yourself. It'd be impossible for you to grow up in your culture and not have those things. Mm-hmm. It's okay that you have them. What's not okay is to not be aware of them and then just to act on them. And so really becoming aware of them gives you the freedom to not act on them. And if you can remember that and get comfortable with that, you have come a long, long way. I love what you just said about having the freedom to not act, because I think a lot of people hear that and think oppression. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a phenomenal way to frame that. And sort of the other thing I'm picking up on is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because even when you've, you know, done a lot of work and a lot of self-reflection and, you know, coming from a linguist here, you know, language changes over time and, you know, certain words and their meanings become ameliorated over time. You know, they get better or, you know, more acceptable. Others, you know, they become less acceptable over time or their meanings become worse. And so you don't use them as much. So even the language we use all the time is going to change based on semantic shifts and what's been brought to our attention and changes in social dynamics and what we've learned is or is not acceptable. Yep, nicely, nicely said. Well, and that's true. Just when you think you've gotten comfortable, whoops, you get uncomfortable again and you got to go through another one. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> And you gave us the perfect metaphor there of, oops, the paper dropped and the words fell out of the bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so then that just kind of brings us to, is there anything else you'd like to add? One of the things that I find kind of interesting is, is I, I think it's really helpful to work on being open and accepting and not just of others, but of of people in your own group, right? Some of the things I've seen, um, women are harder on other women uh, often than it seems even remotely possible, but it, it can get pretty vicious, right? And one thing in the queer community too, it's, it's you have to be a particular type of queer to be accepted. You have to be a certain age, you have to be a certain level of femme or butch, and it's not just... Or fluid. Or fluid. It's not just being accepted for who you are, where you are. And I think that's something all of us can work on, is just accepting people for where they are. And fundamentally, though, it starts with yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's because when you can deal with your own flaws, your own shames, your own whatever it is that keeps you up at night or worries around in your mind and you accept that it becomes so much easier to accept it in other people so it just comes back to is do your work 
Know your social intersection. And and I would I would add to to the end of that is to um, cheer and celebrate everyone else's successes because you will also then you you can also enjoy your own success. Um, I I think we need to stop tearing each other down, and I think we can do that by just. Just being happy for each Even other. Even if you're anonymous on the internet, don't tear. Right. Absolutely. I think that's gotten way too uh, big. But anyway, that's but, a digression. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. Yes, <laughs> I agree. And, you know, Neil talks about disinhibition effect all the time. It's everywhere. You know that I have a screen in front of me so I can say whatever I want because there are no immediate consequences. So I can say, you know, whatever I want. Yep. It's a problem. Agreed. Yep. Um, you know, but we've covered pretty much everything on our end. Was there anything else you wanted to add or make sure you got out there to our listeners? Mm. Just be brave. Absolutely. Yes, agreed. I think bravery is absolutely something to implement, you know, personally, professionally, everywhere, really. We can all be braver. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Pamela and Mindy, for joining us today. This was a great conversation. I love the context you brought and the insight you brought with your applied experience to uncomfortable conversations. I think a lot of times the word uncomfortability or discomfort can have a negative connotation. And I think this ameliorates that a bit and makes it less scary. So thank you so much. Thanks for doing this, guys. Talk to you all later. And for anyone out there who would like to get in contact with Pamela and Mindy, you can find their contact information on fallingcolors.com. Yes, phenomenal catching up with them. And let's all keep tossing these ideas around at the workplace. Catch you later.